The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the evidence of things hoped for, or the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. Now, in that context, what we're being told is that faith is a noun. A noun, a person, place, or thing. And so the faith, the noun, is the thing. And thus we conclude that in the economy of God, there is an invisible substance that's called faith. Now, just a few verses down from that, in verse 6 of chapter 11, we're told that without faith, it is impossible to please God. That is, the exercising of faith within our lives is paramount to us pleasing him. And without that, we cannot please him. Now, the amazing thing about faith is that faith, although it is a substance and although God recognizes it very clearly, and although it is invisible to us and that we can't hold it up and tangibly describe it, we can see how it manifests in the lives of God's people. But incredibly, faith has a way of manifesting itself in so many different ways in every different life or in many different ways in the same life, depending on the circumstances and the situations that a given person is going through. Well, as we come now to chapter 7 of the book of Luke, what we have in this chapter are five real-life examples of faith that are manifested in different ways uh, in the ministry of Christ and those that he impacted. And what we find also is that each one of them is meaningful to us. And so we begin chapter 7, verse 1. The first of these instances concerns uh, Jesus and a certain Roman centurion that had a need. So notice with me in verse 1. It says, Now when he, that is Jesus, had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who is dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he's built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned him around and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. We're told that Jesus, after finishing the lengthy sermon that we studied in chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain, 
that he returned to the village of Capernaum, which was really the home base of his ministry uh, in the northern part of the country in the Galilee region. And upon entering into the village, at some point, he's met by the servants of a centurion. Now, a centurion was a Roman soldier who was appointed over or in charge of a hundred men. That was where the word centurion came from. The prefix cent speaks of the hundred. And we see these throughout the New Testament, these centurions that were dispersed throughout the land that had charge over different areas and different commands in those areas. The amazing thing about the centurions that we notice throughout the scripture is that they're always spoken of in a positive light. Although they're Roman, that they're non-Jews, and though in a sense they were enemies of the state of Israel, we see that these, for some reason, these centurions, they're always noble men. Not just this one here, but we see a centurion who's at the foot of the cross. And upon hearing the things that Jesus said from the cross and observing the scene and all that took place there, he came to the conclusion and he said, surely this man was the son of God, able to acknowledge who Jesus was. We see a centurion um, named Cornelius, or yeah, in the book of Acts. And, And Cornelius was a man, the Bible tells us that he was devout and that he came to faith in Jesus Christ, that he was open to the God of old. And so thus he got saved. We see later in the book of Acts that Paul was accompanied by a few centurions at different times as he was being transported from Jerusalem, Caesarea, and then to Rome. And in each instance, those centurions were noble men of decent character, and some of them even became believers. But here we see a centurion, and this centurion is not only good, He is what we could go so far as to say exceptional. We see that he has, first of all, a servant that is dear unto him. And that having an opportunity to come to Jesus, the reason why he would come is for the healing of a sick servant. Now, you've got to understand that the status of a servant in those days was absolutely nothing. They were considered less than property. And if one servant would die, another one would quickly fill his place. And they were very lightly esteemed. They held absolutely no political authority and really no human uh, um, standing in the esteem of the people in that day. But this man sees his servant and it says that his servant was dear unto him. We're also told in this that once he besought the elders of the Jews to come to Jesus, that they immediately came to Jesus saying that he was worthy that Jesus should come to his house. And he gave two reasons. Number one is they said that he loves our nation. Now that's a phenomenal thing to realize. That an enemy of their nation and one that's sent to keep order amongst the people that were hostile towards him, that he would love their nation. And that number two, he would love their nation so much that he would put his money where his mouth is and that he actually built them a synagogue or afforded them a place where they could publicly worship their God. And so this man of extreme rare character, as we look at um, especially those that were of Roman descent within the scriptures. And you'll notice that the Jews, they came to Jesus and they said that he is worthy that you should do this for him. The word worthy that's used there, it's the Greek word axion. 
What it means is of equal weight, meaning that the weight of his character is worthy of the weight of the request. He's asking that a miracle be done in his name, and by all of our outward estimations, he is worthy or equal of the weight that you would come and that you uh, would then do this for him. Well, Jesus is inspired by this. And so Jesus decides that he's going to go and he's going to honor the request of these Jewish elders and heal the servant of this young man or of this centurion. But as he's going, he's met by more of the servants of the centurion or his friends that come to him and say, wait, stop. We have a second message from our master. He says that he is not worthy that you should come unto his house, but that he is a man that's under authority and he understands how authority works. He has servants under him that he says, come and go, and they come and go. And because he's a man of power and submitted to the throne of Caesar, he recognizes that you're submitted to an infinitely higher throne than he is, that you've been appointed by God. And thus your authority that you have comes from God. And so if all you do is just simply speak the word of healing towards my servant, then my servant will be healed. It's not worth the headache it will cost you to come into my house. And certainly for a Jew to enter the house of a Gentile would cost a little bit of controversy and turmoil, especially in that day. Well, Jesus, here's the second message, the profession of faith that all you have to do is say the word. And it says that Jesus marveled. And it's the only time in all of the New Testament that Jesus ever marvels at someone's faith. He does commend the faith of a Syrophoenician woman in Matthew chapter 15 who besought him for her demon-possessed daughter. But it's the only time he marvels at faith, and it just so happens that it's not even a Jew or an Israelite that's expressing the faith. It's the faith of a Roman centurion. And then we find that the conclusion of the matter is that this man's servant is healed at the very time uh, that Jesus um, spoke the word. Now, what is so marvelous about the faith of this centurion and where does it challenge us as believers today? Here's, what mar- here's what's marvelous about it. It's that as a Roman, first of all, and not even a Jew, this man had a faith that there was a living God over all that can do anything. He recognized that there had to be a being that went beyond the powers of humanity. And that if there was a being that set all things into existence, then he had to be unlimited in his power to interpose his will in a situation sovereignly. And he believed that enough that he would send to Jesus for a healing. He also believed that as God, that he decides who sits where in the authority order of the universe. He knew that in the realms of men, he was a Roman soldier. And thus, in the eyes of men, he had authority over Israel politically. But he recognized that in the realms of God, he was a Roman, and that God was the God of Israel, and thus, spiritually, Israel was over him in the eternal realm, or in the greater kingdom, or the greater expression of reality in the world. And he believed that, and the action that proved that he believed it is that he was willing to build a synagogue for a nation and hold them in high esteem. He was called to keep the peace, but he knew that they were the ones that served the true and living God of peace. 
The third uh, manifestation of this man's faith is that he recognized where he was on the spectrum of God's order and that he realized that that was way down near the bottom. That if Jesus was appointed by God, be it that he was a prophet or be it that he was God himself, and perhaps the centurion didn't know that yet at this time, but what he knew is that in comparison to who Jesus was, he was way, 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 way down, even though in the eyes of men, perhaps he held a bit of a, a, a authority in the thing. And he knew that where Jesus was, was way, 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 way up near the top. And he recognized that the gap that existed between where he was in God's authority structure and where Jesus was in God's authority structure, that that gap was so vast that the only thing he could do to ask God to intervene in his situation was to simply make request with humility. Notice that he didn't boast at all of any of his worth. He didn't say, yes, you should do this for me because I did, in fact, build the synagogue for the Jews. And in fact, I have been a supporter and a lover of them. And I've exercised great restraint in my position as a centurion among them. And so thus, you should do this. He doesn't do any of that. He simply comes to Jesus via a servant declaring himself completely unworthy to even look Jesus in the face. And he simply asks that a miracle might be done on his behalf because his heart is going out to his servant. And Jesus is so moved by this man's faith in this regard and in this way that not only does he grant the miracle, but it says that he marveled at the faith that this man exercised. The centurion's confidence stood upon Jesus' power and his authority and not on his worth or privilege or anything else in the coming. And so we see in the centurion the example of an obtaining faith, and that is humble belief that's coupled with confident prayer. He recognized who he was in the eyes of God, that he had nothing to offer, and he was bold enough to simply ask that grace would be extended in his direction, and Jesus was obliged uh, to supply it. And so Jesus marvels at his faith. Well, then the story goes on, and Jesus um, moves away from Capernaum, and it tells us in verse 11, it says that it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, which was nearby where Capernaum was. And many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now, when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city were with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier or the coffin, and they that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God has visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about, and the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, showed him now all of these things. And so Jesus departs from Capernaum shortly after the healing of this centurion city. And he comes now into the city of Nain. And if you can imagine the scene for just a moment, Jesus is there and he's with his disciples and it says a great company of people. 
And no doubt there was a great spirit of rejoicing that was emanating among them as they moved now from the place where they were to the place where they were going. The ministry of Jesus is gaining steam. There's a buzz and an excitement because they know that everywhere that he goes, incredible things happen. Lives are being changed. Miracles are being performed. And and heaven is literally being manifested on earth in the presence of Jesus. And as they're now entering into this village near the gate, they're met by another company of people that are coming out of the city that have exactly the opposite expression and experience than the group that's going into the city. He's bringing life in. They're bringing death out. A young man is being carried. And somewhere in that company, there's a woman whose life has just been absolutely broken. We're told that she is a widow, which means at some point along the line, she lost her husband. And for a woman in those days, that would be a tragic thing. It's a woman, a tragedy for any woman in any generation or time to lose her husband. But now on top of having experienced widowhood, now she loses the only son that she had as a byproduct of that marriage. And that would just be for her a death blow. It would be as though one of her arms were cut off when she was widowed, and now the other one is cut off in losing her son. And this would ensure for her that she would go from here to absolute poverty and destitution. She would be totally lonely, and her chances of having a future at this point were were so small and so little. And so death is surrounding her, and grief is in this company that's coming out of the city as Jesus is coming in. Now, the Bible tells us that when Jesus saw her, so somehow he looks through this multitude, and immediately his eyes are fixed upon this one woman who's in this condition. And it says that Jesus had compassion upon her. That's an incredible thing, and it's a word that we've almost forgotten and that we quickly pass over even when we read it in the scriptures. We live in a world today where compassion has become really a thing of the past. And there's a great lack of compassion in the world uh, that we're in today. I heard the story uh, a couple of years ago by a couple that I'm friends with that adopted a couple of children from Russia. And part of the process of going through that adoption is that they had to make a few trips over there to um, fulfill some of the obligations and the paperwork and all, all, all that had to be done. And on one particular trip, they they came back and they were telling me what it was like uh, in the city of Moscow. They were describing the darkness and the spiritual darkness that was there and just the the, the godlessness of the the culture and the way that the people are. And they said that in one um, day that they were there, they were walking across a, a crowded street and there was an elderly woman who was trying to work her way as the people were crossing both directions and she stumbled uh, and she fell right to the curb and she was just kind of stuck there and they said that not one person in, in all of the multitudes of people stopped to help this young woman this old woman that they were just walking right over her she was just an obstruction and the faster that they could get their foot over where she was laying and just get on with their life the better and, and they just couldn't be bothered or interrupted in the least even to help a, a, an old woman who had fallen in the street and I remember hearing that and going, my goodness, what, is, what, what kind of a world is that? You know, what kind of a world is it where someone wouldn't even stop to help an old lady? But I, I kept thinking about that, and I thought, you know, we all kind of do that all the time. You know, not that blatant, not that obvious. Like, we would probably, all of us, help that woman in that situation. 
But how often do we just overlook things that are right there in front of our eyes uh, that, that represent just the, the deepest hurt and suffering that people can experience in life? We look at a single uh, mother, and she's obviously single, wrestling with children in a store. And if we would just stop and think for a minute of what life is like uh, for that woman who's wrestling with those uh, those kids, but but we don't. We don't stop to even think about that, uh, what that what that situation is like for her. Or, you know, you fill in the blanks. We hear it all the time. Someone who has been diagnosed with a sickness or someone that's going through something with a sick child or someone, uh, you know, that's um, fallen on hard times or lost a job. And things happen and we go, oh, you know, but we almost have, even as Christians, come to a point where we don't allow ourselves to be touched with the feeling of other people's infirmities. But Jesus was. And it says that he had compassion upon this woman. That's what compassion is. The word literally means to be emotionally moved and to feel sympathy and to allow yourself to be able to feel what someone else feels. Now, what's the reason why there's such a lack of compassion in our society and in our hearts today? I believe it's twofold. Number one, I think it's because our margins are so narrow that we barely have a, a spare minute to give to anything else other than the things that are, are going on within our lives. Our lives are so high strung by our responsibilities and our work schedules and our families and the things that our children are involved in or, or our hobbies or whatever it is that, that to even make time to think about someone else's issues or problems um, is almost overwhelming to us and we can't do it. You know, because if we did, then we would probably feel inclined to do something about it uh, and we just don't have time to do something about it. And so to, you know, feel compassion and then do nothing, that produces guilt. And we're like, well, I don't want to think about this anymore and I can't do anything about it, so I'm just not going to think about it because we just don't have the time. The second reason why we don't do it is because oftentimes we look at people's situations and we realize there's absolutely nothing we can do. So that even if I was able to have compassion on this person or on this situation, what can I do about it? If we were walking into that village and we saw the woman walking out, realizing that she was widowed and she just lost her only son, we might even feel bad, but what can we do about it? I can't raise the dead. I can't marry the woman. What, what in the world could I possibly do? And so there's a combination of the fact that I don't have time and resources and I can't do anything. I don't have any power in the whole thing. And so what happens is I become kind of calloused and I just begin to, to look over and, and my defense against it is that I cannot or do not feel what those people are feeling. But there's a second byproduct of that that's dangerous and that's this, is that when we don't have compassion for people that are suffering, we become a self-absorbed people. And that self-absorption snowballs into a point where eventually we would walk over an old lady in, in the street and just not even look at it or acknowledge it and become it. And amazingly, that's exactly what the Bible says the spiritual atmosphere will be in the last days. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said that because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. It's a lack of compassion. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, when it talks about the condition of men's hearts again in the last days, it says that they will be without natural affection. 
In other words, things that the human heart was designed by God to feel in the place of other people that are going through things, it will no longer feel because uh, of the hardness of the hearts without natural affections. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul describes um, the, the, the unbelieving mind this way. He says that they'll have their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness or uh, sinfulness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And so the result of being self-absorbed is that you come to a place where you find yourself without feeling, that you cannot feel the infirmities that other people feel. So what's the cure uh, for, for a lack of compassion? Because I know that I feel that in my heart sometimes. Sometimes I hear news and I say, why don't I feel that? And I know that when that happens to me, I know I'm in a very dangerous place. And so what's the solution? I think that very simply, the, the first thing, if you recognize that you're a person without compassion, is that you ask for it, is that you ask God to give it to you. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. It's one of the Beatitudes. And it's something that he gives to us that makes us different than the rest of the world is that we have the ability to feel pain, that we can mourn over the things that people are going through. Now, if God says that it's something that's to be a part of our lives, then we have the permission and the authority to pray for it, expecting that he's going to soften and tenderize our hearts again. To the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul commanded that we be tender-hearted towards one another. That means a softness of heart, a sensitivity of heart, an ability to feel what people are feeling. We were told again by Paul that we're to weep with those that weep. We can't make ourselves weep. Weeping is the byproduct, again, of a tender heart, and it's something that comes from somewhere else. And again, to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul said that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, we're not capable, any one of us, of producing those emotions in and of ourselves. But what we can do is we can ask God to plow over the fallowed, hardened ground of our hearts and to water us again by his Holy Spirit and to give us eyes for what other people are going through that we might enter into their sufferings with them and that we might somehow then make a difference. That's where we begin. We pray and we ask God to give us compassion and a tender heart. But notice what Jesus did secondarily he felt the compassion and his heart went out to her but then he did something with it it says that he came to her and it says that he um in verse 14 it says he came and he touched the buyer so that they that bear him stood still and he said young man i say unto you arise the first thing that jesus did practically after feeling the the the, the pain of it is that he allowed himself to be interrupted he was on a schedule. <clears throat> he was going somewhere. There was something for him to do. But when the situation arose, he allowed his daytimer to be interrupted enough that he would stop and look into the situation. Then, as a representative of God, he touched the situation. He went into it. He laid his hand upon the coffin. Now, that's what he did in that situation. For you and I, God may give us some way that we can enter into the circumstance that we can extend ourselves and that we can bring God into someone's life who's going through something when they have a need. And then the third thing he did is that he expended what resources he had to help. Now, he happened to be God, 
which meant that he had resources that in some ways supersede the resources that we have. But in other ways, we have resources that I think oftentimes we don't tap into or that we don't take advantage of in in that whole thing. We think sometimes, and and, and I don't want to diminish Jesus, so don't hear that I'm diminishing Jesus, that he was just like the miracle fountain. Because Jesus could have performed a miracle every minute. I mean, he could have touched every life and raised every... He didn't do that. He touched whom he was led to touch. He extended power where he was led to extend power. But we see that he was also filled with that power day by day as he would meet with God and be filled with it. When the woman touched the border of his garment, Jesus said, virtue's gone out of me. Some of the resources that I was given for this day have left in, in this healing. Something just happened. So Jesus gave of what he had for that day to a woman who had need. And I believe that sometimes God might use us if we would step out and allow ourselves to feel and enter into people's situations and give us the ability to feel compassion and to make a difference for God uh, in the situation. The result of it is that there was a miracle. And the result of it is that there was an awakening in the village of Nain, that the buzz went out, that there's a great prophet that has risen up and the word of that miracle spread far and wide and the reputation of Jesus and the ministry was advanced because of it. And thus we have through this woman an example of responsive faith. And that is that God had compassion on her in the situation that she was in And she responded to the compassion that God had by furthering his cause or by giving her life uh, more completely to his cause. It's faith that's stirred up as a response to Jesus' compassion. And it tells us that the word spread all the way down to John the Baptist. And then notice what happened in verse 19. It says that John then, this is John the Baptist, hearing about this miracle, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, are you he that should come? Are you the Messiah? Or look we for another. And when the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us unto you, saying, are you he that should come? Or do we look for another? In this Scripture, what we have is we have the wavering faith of John the Baptist. Now, we know by now that John had been the forerunner of Jesus' first coming as the Messiah. He was Jesus' first coming who was brought into the world just a few months prior to him, and that he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He testified to Israel that they were to make ready and prepare the way because the Lord was coming, that he was on the scene. He was baptizing near Jordan and God had put a message in his heart and there was fruit that was coming out of his life. And then John saw the spirit of God descending upon Jesus and he heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he pointed all of his disciples to Jesus saying, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we see a man who is absolutely certain and sure by the revelation of the Spirit of God in his own life and even by the seeing of the Spirit descending upon Jesus that Jesus was in fact the Messiah that would come. 
But now, John finds himself in a totally different position than he had been in previously. Now, he's in prison. He had been faithful to declare to King Herod that what he was doing and the way that he was living was not right. And as an act of seeking to silence the voice of truth and the conviction of the Spirit within his life, it says that Herod locked John up in the prison. And so John was waiting there in the prison. What we discover as we look at John's heart here is that there was something going on in him where he thought, okay, well, he's the Messiah. He's the one that's going to set us free from the yoke and the oppression of Rome. He's the one that's going to set captives free. And so all I have to do is sit tight in this prison here for a little bit of time, and it won't be long before Jesus lets me out, that he'll work the arrangements or the circumstances will come around for my freedom, and I can get back into the woods and keep eating grasshoppers. Because that's what John ate, for whatever reason he did. But now he's been in prison for a little while. And what we see is that Jesus is not doing something that John is hoping that he'll do in his life, and what John thinks is a very easy thing that Jesus could do in his life. Here he finds out that there's a woman who just had her dead son raised back to life again. And if he can do something so great in the life of a woman that he doesn't even know, then why wouldn't he do something as easy as setting me free from prison, who was his forerunner and the voice of truth, bringing him into the world? And so now John begins to wonder, and he says, well, wait a minute. He's supposed to set the captives free. Why am I sitting here in prison? And his faith begins to waver So he sends messages to Jesus asking, are you he that should come or should we wait for another? And John is stumbled here. And here's the reason why. Because Jesus is not doing something in his life that Jesus could easily do while at the same time, Jesus is doing even harder things in other people's lives. And his faith is wavering because God is not meeting his expectations what we see is that Jesus is meeting his father's expectations. Notice what happens right after this. It says in verse um, 21, it says, and in the same hour, so he doesn't give them an answer directly right away, but he spends an hour curing many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And to the poor, the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. So he doesn't answer right away, but rather he lets the messengers see the things that he does for the space of about an hour, and then he sends them back with the message, tell them what you see, and tell him, by the way, blessed are those who are not stumbled because I do not do in their lives the things that they expect for me to do within their lives. I think one of the hardest things that a Christian faces, and it's something that every Christian faces at some point in their walk with the Lord is when you find yourself in a place where God is not doing something in your life that he easily could do in your life. Where you, you uh, are, are in a place where you're waiting upon the Lord and maybe you're in a season of your marriage that's bad 
or you have a, a situation at your home or with some of your kids and that situation is bad and, and you're waiting for God to, to move in it or perhaps you have a job situation. You, you found yourself in a career path that you absolutely hate and it looks like there, there's nothing for you but to just face a miserable life for the rest of your existence. Or maybe for some it's a sickness that they have that's chronic or that the doctors say we don't know what it is or we don't know what the cure might be. Or for others, it might be a time of waiting, maybe waiting on a spouse for God to bring that person into their life or uh, waiting for him to open up a door or a career path or something that's going to happen. And they're just in a place where they're waiting upon the Lord to do something in their life. And it seems as though as much as they pray and as much as they ask and as much as they wait, God doesn't answer their prayer. And it seems that all, all they can do is ask, but all God seems to do is bring that, the uh, silence to come. So what do you do as a Christian when you come into a place in your life like that? And we all come into places in our life like that. Here's what God says. Trust me. He says, wait for me. Wait to see what I'm going to do in your life. The temptation that we face when we come to those situations is the temptation to think that God doesn't see the situation that we're in or that God has forgotten about us. Or worse than that, we can think that God doesn't care about us or the situation that we're in. Or even worse than that, we can think that God doesn't have the power uh, to, to move in those situations that he cannot help me. But what we're called to remember when we go through times like that is that his promise to us is that we're not forgotten. That his promise is that he knows the number of hairs that are on our head and not one of them falls to the ground without him knowing about it. That he tells us that his thoughts towards us are more in number than the grains of sand that are by the seashore. And that he's not too busy to be working in our situation and he hasn't forgotten about us. And that he's as involved in our lives when we're in the season of waiting in a prison as he was or will be in our lives when things are happening uh, exactly according to what we would want them to be happening. Um, he is, in every situation that we're in, doing something in our lives even when we're in the prison. It's something that maybe we can't see and maybe we don't understand, but he is doing something in it. And he is only good and he doesn't apologize for the things that he does within our lives. It is possible sometimes to force God's hand. We see that in scripture. Abraham went into his handmaiden. and he wanted to hurry the plan along. He didn't like God's timing, and thus we have Hagar. Moses insisted that God raise up a mouthpiece because he didn't want to speak for the people. It wasn't God's will. God wanted Moses to do it, but God said, fine, if you're going to insist on this, I'll give you Aaron, and we'll see how that goes, uh, golden calf you know, problems and, and all the rest. We see it with the people of Israel when they demanded a king from God, and it wasn't God's timing, and so God gave them Saul, and it turned out to be a train wreck and a disaster for the people. And we've seen it in the lives of some Christians. Perhaps you've experienced it where you were waiting on God and his timing wasn't your timing. And so you insisted and demanded and you took matters into your own hand. And what you realize on the other side of that is that it is never to your advantage to go around God's sovereign plan for your life. If God has you waiting in a season or in a prison for a reason, then you sit in the prison and wait for God because he's working it out. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 23, it says at the end of the verse, he says, you shall know that I am the Lord. They that wait, or they, they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. And any of us that choose to wait upon the Lord to allow his work to be done in our lives the way that he wants, 
will never regret that we waited upon the Lord in that way. You say, well, wait a minute. When did John the Baptist get out of prison? (laughs) He didn't. John the Baptist stayed in prison for a little while longer. And then on a certain day, a conspiracy was hatched by the daughter of Herodias and Herodias, her mother. And John was beheaded in prison for the crime that he committed. You say, well, how does what you're saying then apply in the light of what happened to John the Baptist in the end? The answer is this, is that John not only got what was best, but John ultimately got what he wanted. I mean, if you think about it for just a minute, what happens if John gets set free from the prison? He had no home. He had no family. He had no friends. He went forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah and his ministry was fulfilled. He was called to point the way for Messiah. He did it and he was done. So what John ultimately wanted, even if he got out, was God. And that's what he got, but in a much greater way because he went to heaven. So John ultimately got what was best. And I don't think when we get to heaven, John's gonna say, yeah, I really wish I got out and had 20 more years on earth in exchange for it. Listen, if God is done with us in our time and what he's called us to do on this world, the best thing that he can do is take us home. And so Jesus deliberately did not set John free because the best thing in God's plan for John was for him to go home and be with the Lord. But blessed are they that are not offended in him. And so this passage teaches us the importance of patient faith. And there is a time in every one of our lives many times in our lives that we must exercise patient faith as Christians, waiting for God's timing and for God's working. Now, lest the people that just heard John's messengers and they also heard the reproof that Jesus gave to the messengers, lest they should think John to be less than he was, Jesus then speaks to them about John. Notice in verse 24. It says, And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went you out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken in the wind? Did you think you were going out and you would see someone who is just shaken, wishy-washy, moved by their mood? But what went you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment, classy clothing, velvet, silk? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, Jesus gives them some information about who John was. He says, you line up everyone that came in the Old Testament in a row, and you put John in that line also, and you pick who's the greatest. You'd never guess that it was John the Baptist, wouldn't you? He did no miracle. He never raised anyone from the dead. He preached a couple of messages, but Jesus says he was the greatest. The reason he was the greatest is because he was the forerunner, the one that would point the way for him who was the greatest in rank of all time, and that is Jesus himself. And John was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and thus he was the greatest. However, he was not a part of what we are, and that is the church. 
And so Jesus says, he that is least in the kingdom under me is greater than John. And so we occupy an even higher position than John. But Jesus does not allow the people to think less of John because his faith wavered. And let me say this to you. If you have a time in your life where you can say, God, I doubted you and I moved ahead of you. Or you can look at your own life now and you can say, I'm discouraged because of the way I see things falling out. And I'm beginning to wonder, was I foolish to accept Christ and to walk this narrow way? If you've had those thoughts, I want you to know this. Though Jesus might look at you and say, don't be offended and wait for me. His heart towards you is still perfect love. Jesus speaks well of John. He doesn't say that fool. He shouldn't doubt it. He would have had so much more if he didn't waver in his faith, but now he's been a bad witness for me and he'll never have anything. No, he doesn't do that. He says, my plan for him is still to be what he was and my heart towards him is still perfect in my affection toward him. And so it says in verse 29 that all the people that heard him, that is John, and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees... And the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And so a contrast is set in the Bible here between those that received the testimony of John and those that refused the testimony of John. And those that received were the common people, the tax collectors, the Roman soldiers. But those that refused were the religious elite those that should have been the first to accept the message of John. But it says that they rejected the counsel of God and that they were not baptized by him. Notice what Jesus has to say to that. And so the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another and saying, We have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned to you and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. What he's accusing the Pharisees of here is of being absolutely unresponsive to anything at all that God would do in their lives to try to reach them. I mean, here the common people are receiving the testimony of John and that testimony is being ignored completely by the Pharisees. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he gives a message and he's completely rejected by the Pharisees. And he said, look, you guys are like little kids that are all in the square and they call out to one another and say, hey, let's play, you know, patty cake. And they say, no, we don't want to play patty cake. They say, all right, well, let's play hopscotch. No, we don't want to play hopscotch. All right, let's play Cat's Cradle. No, we don't want to play Cat's Cradle. And and sometimes you get people like that. They're just not going to play no matter what. And Jesus said, John came and he was somber and solemn and fasting and you refused. Now the Son of Man comes and he's rejoicing and eating and celebrating and you refuse. You guys are so obstinate. What would it take to get under your skin and to receive the good that God wants to do within your life? But isn't it amazing so often that it's religious people that will not give ground to the true work of God within their lives. To give up their self-righteousness or, for the Pharisees, their position and their elitist status in the eyes of the people would cost them too much. 
And so everything is a threat, no matter what it is. Baptist, Pentecostal, Catholic, Presbyterian, no, none of it. We'll keep what we've got and we'll go. But Jesus finishes it by saying that wisdom is justified by all of her children. And here's the idea behind that, is that the kind of wisdom that you follow is going to look like something in your life later on. And if you adhere to the wisdom of religion or the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of men, then you're going to live the kind of life that demonstrates that wisdom. The fruit of it's going to come out. But if you follow the wisdom of God, then you're going to enjoy the byproduct and the fruit that the wisdom of God produces within a life. And so if it's a publican, a tax collector that will listen and receive, then they will enjoy. But if you will refuse, then that's on you. This example in the Bible right here is an example of rejected faith. These men would not believe because of their religion and their pride. And so it says that one of the Pharisees then desired him that he would eat with him. And so he went into the Pharisee's house and he sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster box of ointment. And she stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spoke within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him. For she is a sinner. And so we see the scene now unfolds between the Pharisee and this woman who's in the Pharisee's house with Jesus there at the meal. First of all, we see the Pharisee. He's an elitist. He's powerful. He's the religious authority of his day. And for him to come to Jesus, he has the most to lose and the least to gain, at least in the realms of men. And at the same time that Jesus is in the house, there's a woman there. And the Bible tells us that she's a sinner, a woman of disrepute, probably a prostitute, according to how the language points it out. And her situation is that she's already lost everything. Her reputation, her hope, her future, all of that is already gone. And so she comes to Jesus with this alabaster box of ointment, and she begins to just worship at his feet. She begins to weep and then to wash her feet, his feet with her tears. How many tears does it take to wash feet? and then to dry them with her hair, and then to anoint them with the oil that was in the alabaster box. And it's a pure expression of love based upon the acceptance that she found in this man, Jesus. And then we're told that the Pharisee, seeing this scene, thinks within himself that if this man were truly a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman this is, and he would stop her from doing what she's doing. And so Jesus calls him on it, verse 40. It says that Jesus answered and said unto him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Master, say on. So Jesus gives a parable and then it's interpretation. He says, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, about $100,000. And the other owed 50, it's about $10,000. So you're talking about a mortgage and a car payment. One man has a mortgage, the other has a car payment. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? And Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, You have rightly judged. 
And he turned to the woman and he said, Simon, see thou this woman? I entered into your house. Now imagine this. Jesus is looking right at the woman while he's talking to Simon. You gave me no water for my feet. Now that was customary in that day. When someone was a guest in your house, the very first thing you would do is wash their feet. But that was above Simon. Jesus was below him in this context. Wouldn't do it. Not worth it. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Number two, you gave me no kiss. Also customary in that day when a guest would come into your house, you would kiss them as a sign of a token of hospitality and acceptance into the house. It was a common greeting. But this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint. A third custom of that day when someone, especially a guest of honor, would come into your house that you would anoint their head with oil. But this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore, I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And so Jesus gives this parable and then he gives the interpretation. The two debtors, both forgiven quickly. And then what he does is he applies it to the situation that's right in front of them. And he looks at Simon and he says, hey, you know what? You invited me into your house. And the demonstration of your love is simply that you kind of threw money at me. You wanted to show the pomp of the place that you live in. You wanted to show off maybe your status as a Pharisee and have me in your house. And maybe you wanted to wine and dine me and impress me with the food that you set before me. But you've done none of those things that show any true honor, respect, reverence, or acceptance of who I am and what I came to do. There's no acknowledgement at all in it. But this woman, who's got nothing to give me outwardly, has showered nothing but selfless, humiliating love upon me from the time that I came into her house. And what this shows, Simon, is that this woman knows exactly who she is and she knows exactly what she needs. And she knows that she's going to find the answer to her need, which is the forgiveness of her sins, in me. And thus, she has shown much love because her sins, which are many, are forgiven. But then the backhanded application to Simon himself is that whoever is forgiven little loves little. Now, what Jesus is not saying to Simon is that he was not in need of forgiveness. What he was saying to Simon is that he didn't recognize the depths of his own sin and that he wasn't receiving forgiveness. And that was the reason why there was absolutely no love that was given. So the application of it is he says to the woman in verse 48, he looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgives sins also? And he said to the woman, thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. And so the woman is forgiven of her sins and the result of that forgiveness is that she loves. Don't think it to be the other way around. Okay, well, she loved much, therefore he forgave her sins. That would be contrary to everything that we know of God and see of God throughout the whole Bible. The Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. He initiates, we respond. And so she recognized the need that she had and her response to that was that she uh, loved him 
because of it uh, in all of this. We'll pause there. We'll go on into our next chapter um, next week. The worship team can head on up. Um, As I studied this, I found myself a, a little bit challenged, especially this last section where we look at saving faith, the act of this woman Um, anointing Jesus and showing the demonstration of her love. I believe that there are very few of us that really recognize how much we've been forgiven when we first come to Jesus. There's some that do. There's some that they they are so messed up by the time they come to Jesus Christ that, that, that they've got nothing to give at all. And when he forgives them of their sins, they know how much they've been forgiven. And they just love the Lord with this this fervency that, that is the envy to a lot of us. That wasn't me. When I came to Jesus, it was a different type of experience. I, I knew that I needed him, but I didn't recognize or understand the depths of my sins and how, how much he had forgiven me. I knew they were forgiven and I knew they needed to be forgiven. And I appreciated the fact that he forgave them but I didn't really understand what it was and what had taken place. And I remember seeing in other Christians this love that they had for the Lord, and I would think about it, and I would say, I don't know if I can feel that way. I would hear them pray, and they would say, I love you, Lord, and and, and different things. And I I never could bring myself to say that in prayer because I felt like I was kind of lying. Like, how do you talk to God who sees and knows everything, you know, and say something that's not true? You know, you could do that in a group and deceive the people, but you can never deceive God. And, and, I, and I just felt like, God, I don't know if I, I really understand that love. But here's what God did, and I share this with you because maybe you can relate to this experience. Is that he took me on a, a, a course, a path over, over the series of a couple of years, and it began to reveal my heart to me, little by little. I started with a lot of zeal. A lot of fire, you know, and I really thought, God, I'm going to serve you with everything I've got, and I'm going to be your next Billy Graham or your next King David or your next Abraham, faith that impresses God, you know, that's who I thought I was going to be. And over the course of a couple of years, I watched as I realized how sinful I was that I wasn't going to make it. I'm not going to be Abraham. I'm not going to be David. And that bar kept getting lower and lower. And I thought, you know, okay, well, I can't be David. I can't be Abraham, you know. But maybe I could be like one of the judges. You know, I could maybe be Gideon. You know, he was kind of weak. He staggered in his faith a little bit and all this. And, you know, and I went for a little while in that. And then God showed me a little more of my heart, a little more of my failures, a little more of my my sinfulness, my hypocrisy, uh, my weaknesses. And it went lower. I thought, okay, um, maybe Samson. <laughs> maybe I could be Samson. You know, he still did something. He killed more people when he died than he did when he lived, you know, and, and I could maybe do that. And, and then God brought me lower and, and let me see even more of myself. And I thought, okay, maybe I could be Lot. Okay, he was at least declared righteous. You would never know it by reading his story in the scriptures unless it said in the New Testament that he was righteous. Maybe I can be Lot, you know, just, you know, yeah, gross. I mean, read his story and you look at some of the things he did. But but maybe, God, righteous. And then he brought me lower. And I thought, Esau, Lord? He sold his birthright for one morsel of bread. And, and Lord, am I completely, like, is that me? Like, I can't even be Jacob? I can't even be the conniver, the heel catcher? Like, I, Lord, I'm really Esau? Like, that's what I am? And, and, and I was feeling the weight of that. And then it went even lower. To the point where, at one point, I really literally felt like I was Judas. 
Lord, I'm Judas. I'm Judas. And it was starting to sink in. Like, I'm Judas. I'm the denier. I'm the one. I'm John the Baptist in the prison, but didn't hold the faith. Like, Lord, I've, 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 I don't think I denied you, but I feel like I didn't. And he let me feel the weight of what it would be like if I was truly Judas. And there was a feeling even of the separation and a feeling of the weight of that. And I felt the weight of it. And I knew that it was my fault. It was because of what I did and who I was. And I recognized that I had absolutely nothing to bring to God, nothing at all. That in my best state, my righteousness is filthy rags. That no good that I am counts for anything, no good intention I've ever had counts for anything. I am completely lost and completely deserving of hell, judgment, and damnation. And I continued in that state for a span. And then God began to pour out his love within my life. And he began to do things in me that I would look and say, well, Lord, why are you doing that? I don't deserve that. He began to speak to me in my heart in ways that I knew that I, I didn't deserve, but I knew was from him. He began to reveal truth, and he began to use me in people's lives. He began to allow me to do things, and I, and I knew that it was from him. And I said, Lord, why are you doing this? I'm Judas. You, know, you, you don't do this to Judas. Judas, you know, we, we, you know what, what, what gives? And I began to realize the depths of the forgiveness that God had extended towards me. Lord, you've forgiven me of my sins. I bring nothing. You give everything. And a love for the Lord began to grow within my heart as I began to realize, Lord, I deserve zero. And yet you've bestowed so much grace and so much favor and so much forgiveness. And at that point, when that happens in a person's life and they realize how much that they've been forgiven, their whole entire concept of God changes. He goes from father to friend. Not not that he's no longer father, but it's a different kind of father. And the relationship changes. He goes from a giver to God. He's, He's my father. He's my friend. It's not just what he gives to me, but it's who he is to me. And my love for him is sincere and real. And Jesus says that the only way that you can know that love is to know how much your sins have been forgiven. That's saving faith. Father, we thank you tonight for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you speak so faithfully to us through it. And we ask, Lord, that tonight as we close this service out and we consider this woman, Lord, who laid all of her dignity down at your feet because of who you were and what you did for her, Lord, we ask that you might reveal just a little bit more to us how much you love us and how much you've forgiven us. And Lord, perhaps even if there's some here tonight, Lord, that have yet to be forgiven, or have yet, like a Pharisee, perhaps failed to see the depths of their own heart, Lord, we ask that your revelation of that would be gracious and gentle, and that you might bring each of us, Lord, into a place where we can truly declare, Lord, that we love you with all of our heart, mind, and strength, and that our hearts are completely committed to you. So help us, Lord. We trust in you. And we look for you, Jesus, to be the Lord and Savior of our lives. Work faith within each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.